You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here today. It's good to be together again. Wonderful music. What a moving baptism. Uh, God is good, and it's good to see you. Glad you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, welcome. Glad you're joining us. A number of years ago, there was a boxing match that at the time, this was the showdown of the century. I'm referring to Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier to their third fight that happened in the Philippines on October the 1st, 1975. They had fought four years earlier the first time, and Joe Frazier won that one. Muhammad Ali won the second one three years later, so they're tied one-to-one, and here they come in the Philippines at the Manila Philippine Coliseum in front of 25,000 people. It was a sweltering 110 degrees. Uh, but this was more than just a casual fight. This was a battle between two men who hated each other. And what's interesting is it was not always that way. At one time, they actually were somewhat friends. Uh, before Ali had been exiled from the boxing community, um, he was heavyweight champion, but he, that was taken away from him along with his license, and so he was exiled, and, and uh, Frazier felt bad for him and sympathized with him and tried to help him. He went to see President Nixon and tried to get him reinstated. He loaned him money and did everything he could to help him. Meanwhile, Ali resented the fact that Frazier had taken his spot on the world stage. And so uh, when he was reinstated by the Supreme Court, uh, they set up a boxing match together and that is when their friendship changed. Uh, that, that is when Ali began to attack Frazier publicly, uh, his professionally and personally. And of course, Frazier naturally felt hurt and was wounded by that. He began uh, attacking Ali as well. And the things just kept escalating until now you come to October the 1st, 1975. And the only question was, who was the greatest? Who was the greatest boxer? Now, that is not a new question. That same question was in play about 2,700 years earlier on Mount Carmel. Hundreds, if not thousands of people gathered at Mount Carmel, and they were there to hear the answer to one question. Who was the greatest? Now, they weren't looking at boxing, boxers. They were looking at who is the greatest God? Is it the God of King Ahab of Israel who worshiped Baal, the Canaanite fertility God, or was it the God that Elijah worshiped, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who was the greatest? And so they were there to figure out the answer to that question. Now, you may be thinking, hey, that's great. What does that have to do with us today? You and I are in the midst of a battle as well. And it is a battle of opposing worldviews. There is a worldview here which we live in the midst of, and it's the worldview of secularism. And it's the worldview that says, and this comes from a book published by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age. It was published in 2007 by Harvard University Press. Professor Taylor says secularism is a worldview that says they don't deny the existence of God. They just believe God exists over here outside of this material world. He exists in the unbelievable or supernatural and because God exists over here, God really has nothing to say about our lives today. He has nothing to say about my morality or my sexuality or anything to do with life. 
God is over here. He's been reduced to the margins of life. And the secularists say, you need to come of age. And coming of age really means to leave behind the childish beliefs about God and look within yourself to determine your own standard of morality and sexuality and identity in life and value. It's all about self. It's all about what can I get for me now in this material world. And the only way to determine truth is through science. How many times have you heard that in the last two years? It's, it's, it's about the science. That is a secular worldview. Now, on the other hand, there is the Christian worldview. And you and I feel this tug back and forth because the Christian worldview says there is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who created everything that we see including us, the animal kingdom, and God created us to live in relationship with us. And he demonstrated his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins so that we can have fellowship and forgiveness and have eternal life with him. And the Christian worldview says, don't look within yourself to determine your own identity and value. The Christian worldview says, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. So those are two competing worldviews. And you and I are caught in the middle, whether we realize it or not. We feel pulled because over here, the secularist worldview has most of the media on their side. They have higher education on their side. They have marketing. They have all kinds of things on their side infiltrating our minds and our hearts. And we often feel pulled. And so I just want to ask you at the beginning a question for your consideration. Which worldview best represents you? Would you say, you know, I'm a, I'm, I made that decision to follow Jesus, but man, I often live like, like God is at the margins of my life. In other words, he's not, he doesn't call the shots of my life, I do. And uh, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm just so impacted by everything around me. So the question is, how do you and I live with total allegiance to God in a world that is hostile to God? Man, there was a man who did that really well a number of years ago, and his name was Elijah. Elijah. And we're going to look at just quickly at the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. So join me, 1 Kings 18, as we look at Elijah. Elijah is going to be on Mount Carmel. This is one of those high watermarks in Scripture. You know this story. But there's a showdown there, and Elijah's right in the middle of it. Well, you look at the beginning of 1 Kings 18, and it says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. And so naturally, you want to ask the question, in the third year of what? Well, it was a third year of a drought. You remember in 1 Kings 17, God uh, told Elijah, so he went and appeared to King Ahab. He said, it's not going to rain anymore unless I say it's going to rain. And first, we need to back up. Now, why did God bring a drought that led to a famine? Well, it was because of idolatry. You go back, you look at the end of 1 Kings 16, we're introduced to Ahab in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, that's a shocking statement because if you read in the chapters before, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And now you have someone who's doing more evil than those who were before him. And so the, the cycle was going down morally, and uh, Ahab comes in and makes it even worse. And it says in verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Verse 33, Ahab made an Asherah, which was a wooden pole. Uh, Ahab, Asherah, Asherah was the mother goddess of the Canaanite religion. 
Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. So because of that, God says, I'm going to withhold rain. And there's going to be judgment on your land. So that's, that's what he's talking about. In the third year, in the third year of this drought, God tells Elijah, now go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain upon the land. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So there, there's the problem. And it was Elijah's obedience, through his obedience, that God is going to bring rain to Israel. You never know what's on the other side of your obedience. You have a whole nation who is going to be blessed with rain because Elijah obeys God, and through that, he prays, and God brings rain. You never know what's on the other side of your obedience. It's our job just to obey God, and then God takes care of the consequences of that. And so Elijah goes, and now as he's going, we're introduced now to another uh, man of God who feared God in Israel, and his name is Obadiah. There's kind of a lengthy narrative here on Obadiah, so we don't want to just skip over this because there's a lot of verses here. The name Obadiah means servant of the Lord. And so Obadiah was faithful to God. He was working for King Ahab. He was a palace administrator, so he oversaw the royal assets and probably the property of the king. And he's there serving the king, being faithful. Now, he was hiding prophets because Ahab's wife Jezebel was killing prophets so Obadiah was secretly going behind and hiding them in groups of 50 in these caves. And so, but in the meanwhile, Obadiah also had a day job. And so King Ahab told him, verse 5, to go through all the land and, uh, and look for, to the springs of water. Perhaps we'll find grass so, so we can feed the animals. So uh, Ahab's wife is killing prophets and Ahab's concerned about animals. You see, just uh, Obadiah cares for people. He's hiding them. Ahab cares about animals. And as Obadiah is out looking, doing what he's supposed to do, in verse 7, he encounters Elijah. And Obadiah recognized him. He fell on his face. Is it you, my Lord Elijah? Because Ahab had been looking everywhere for him. He sent people to other countries. Just where is Elijah? Where, where is he? And no one could find him. And so now Obadiah sees him and he's overwhelmed. Think, I can't believe it. It's you. And so, of course, you have to read through this. But Elijah essentially tells him, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here and I'll wait. And Obadiah goes, no, no, no. Are, are, do you want me to die? Because as soon as I go tell him, the spirit of the Lord is going to take you somewhere else. And then he's going to kill me because you're not going to be here. And Elijah goes, no, 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 I, I'll be here. Just, just you go, and I'll wait right here. And so you see here Elijah and you see Obadiah, two faithful men, both serving God, both have different gifts, but both are faithful to what they're supposed to do. So I want to share with you four principles about total allegiance. If you're not going to live like Elijah did, have total allegiance to God in a world that is hostile toward God, Here's four things we can see from this. First, total allegiance to God does not exclude uniqueness. Total allegiance to God does not exclude uniqueness. You have Elijah and you have Obadiah, and they did not have identical ministries. You had Elijah often lived outside of Israel. If you read earlier in chapter 17, he was east of the Jordan. But you had Obadiah who lived inside of Israel. You had Elijah who served as a prophet. You have Obadiah who served under a pagan king. You have two different men Two different gifts, two different responsibilities. Um, one writer said, Elijah seems bold, confrontational, intrusive, while Obadiah appears hesitant, cautious, and fearful. 
Yet both were essential and both were helpful in the work of God. And so God has a unique ministry for you. All of us have the responsibility and the commandment to make disciples as followers of Jesus, but the way that we do that is different. Some of you do it in corporate America. Some of you do it at home, staying with your kids. Some of you do it as retirees. We we all have different ways that we do that. Uh, Some of us experience more hardship than others. Some of you have experienced the death of a spouse, the death of a child, a miscarriage, all kinds of things you think, why on earth would God allow me to experience that? The question is, the answer really is we don't know, but somehow God allowed it so he would make you more like Christ. But there, each of us has a unique calling. And so your struggle with suffering may be totally different from someone else's call to become like Christ as well. There was a, um, uh, a book written a number of years ago called No Excuses, and it's by Bob Stoops. He was a longtime um, coach at the University of Oklahoma. And he told this story in that book about how he was hired at the University of Florida. Now, he was hired at the University of Florida at the end of the, uh, it was early 1996. So it was after the 95 season. If you remember, Florida had gotten blown out in the uh, national championship game. They wanted to improve their defense, so they'd go hire Bob Stoops from Kansas State. Now, Kansas State, this coach was just kind of legendary for grinding out, working long hours, all this kind of thing. And so now he comes to work for Steve Spurrier, who had a different philosophy. But Florida was a very good team. And so early in the season in 96, they were ranked number four. Tennessee was ranked number two. And so there they are meeting, uh, I believe it was the third Saturday, uh, something like that in September. So there they are meeting in Tennessee, 107,000 plus people, Peyton Manning, all all of the works. And this is what uh, Bob Stoops said. If it had been Coach Snyder, we would have worked the entire bye week. So Florida had a bye week before Tennessee, including the weekend. But Coach Spurrier had a different way of dealing with those situations. This was going to be my first big game at Florida, so I wanted to have everything buttoned up early. If that meant grinding through the bye week, I was fine with that. But Coach Spurrier had other plans. He said we were going to the beach. Sure enough, we headed to Crescent Beach for a bye week break. Instead of using every waking minute of extra time preparing for Manning in Tennessee, I was floating in the Atlantic with Coach Spurrier. Spurrier said, Bobby, you think Phil Farmer's in the ocean today? No, coach, I believe he isn't. I'm having a hard time believing I am. And so Florida goes up to Tennessee. They're relaxed. They're loose. And 20 minutes into the game, they're winning 35 to nothing. And they they end up winning the game. You see, two totally different philosophies. One's a grinder. One is uh, uh, more relaxed. And they both win a national championship. God has a unique calling on each of our lives. And we get in trouble when we start comparing ourselves to others, right? Paul says when we do that, we're not wise, So you have Obadiah, you have Elijah. And now Elijah sees Ahab. Actually, verse 17 says, when Ahab saw Elijah, uh, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? The, the, The noun troubler is related to the verb to bring calamity or to bring trouble. And really, sometimes it can mean like you, a snake or a viper. So he's saying, is that you, you snake? You have, you have brought all this trouble upon Israel. And, and that, that is how secularists feel often about Christians. Christians are the problem. They are the ones who bring trouble on the world. If they would just get out of the way, that, that is often the, the narrative that's out there. But notice how, how Elijah responded. He answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. 
and your father's house because you have abandoned you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Notice Baals is plural. There were different, the Canaanites felt like there were different manifestations of Baal. Baal was the sun god. He was the storm god. He answered, his voice was actually thunder. When they, when they heard thunder, they thought, oh, that's Baal speaking. Baal would send lightning. Baal was the god of the land. All these different manifestations of Baal. So that's what he means. You followed the Baals. Now, therefore, uh, this, I feel like this is so interesting. Ahab, Elijah's not there to argue with him. He's not, he doesn't hire a lawyer and say, I'm the, we're going to have court. We're going to hash this out right now. He's there to turn Israel back to God. And so he says, okay, what I'd really like you to do, Ahab, just gather everybody at Mount Carmel, and we'll, we'll work this out. Therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So he's going to be outnumbered, 850 to 1. Let's meet at Mount Carmel, and we'll see who the true and living God really is. Now, why would Elijah suggest Mount Carmel? Well, geographically, it was, it was there in Israel, so Israel could go there. It was elevated. It was easy to see. There were springs there, so there was some water available. But spiritually, there's a spiritual reason why I believe Elijah suggested this. Spiritually, the Phoenicians saw Mount Carmel as Baal's home field. This is where Baal dwelled. And so this is where there were frequent storms and so that, this, was, this was every home field advantage was available to Baal right there on Mount Carmel. And so if God, the true God, revealed himself there, <clears throat> there would be no doubt that he was the true and living God because he did, would do it in Baal's backyard. So there he was. And uh, the, 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 the stage is now set. So Ahab, verse 20, <clears throat> sent to all the people. They come, they gather hundreds, possibly thousands of people there. Elijah came near to all the people. Now, notice who he's speaking to. He's not addressing the, these false prophets. He's addressing Israel. He's addressing the people of God who have gone wayward, who are no longer worshiping God. <clears throat> and so he, he asked them a question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, he's, he, he's not saying that the Israelites had a physical disability and they're limping. The, the word means to waver. It means to be indecisive. It's, it means like to be at a fork in the road. You go, I don't know if I should go this way or if I should go this way. So I think I'll just sit here and wait. We would say you're, you're riding the fence. You're, you're not making a decision. So many in Israel, uh, secretly, they would half-heartedly worship God. And then out in public, they would half-heartedly worship Baal. And so there was no commitment. There was no allegiance in their life. And they appeared to do one thing, but then behind closed doors, they kind of halfway did something else. And so he's saying, if, if, if God is the true God, then follow him. Follow means go after, pursue him, get to know him, commit your life to him. Hey, if Baal's the true God, then do that with him as well. But just make a decision. Don't, don't, just, don't just ride the, the fence here. Spurgeon wrote this, two opinions you may hold in politics, perhaps, but then you will be despised by everybody unless you are of one opinion or the other. But two opinions in the matter of soul religion you cannot hold. But remember, if the Lord be your God, you cannot have Baal too. You must have one thing or else the other. Have you ever wondered what made the worship of Baal so attractive? Why were the Israelites just so drawn to worship 
this false god. There were three reasons. One, they had, Baal had royal endorsement. You had the king and his wife who promoted Baal worship. So there was power behind, and power can be persuasive. So that, that was happening. Second, Baal was, worship was very practical. You, you're talking about agricultural economy, and here's, he's the, considered the storm god. You need rain for your crops. So you worship Yahweh on Saturday. You trust Baal in the week to send you rain. That's just how many of them operated. And then third, Canaanite idolatry had tradition on its side. It was well established. They had been in the land well before the Israelites got there. So it had just been passed on from generation to generation. And th that's just how it was. And so there, there's Israel in the midst of that, trying to live for God, being impacted by Canaanites, just how you and I are just often impacted by secularism. You know, secularism is really about faith in self. It's about science and reason, and I'm just going to put my faith in self and not in God. Um, secularism values equality and freedom, which, hey, those are great things, but they try to accomplish that by removing religion from society. And so, uh, how are you and I to live for God in the midst of this type of world? Well, we don't want to do what the Israelites did. We don't want to halfway worship God and halfway worship the world or worship self. Um, Israel's problem was they threw worship of God in the mix with worship of Baal. And they just stirred it up and said, I, I, think, I think this is what I'll do spiritually. Kyle Eidelman wrote this in his book, God's at War, uh, about idolatry. He said, idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all the others come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, eventually you'll find that underneath it is a false god. Until that God is dethroned and the Lord God takes his rightful place, you will not have victory. Notice how the people responded to Elijah. Um, and the people did not answer him a word. End of verse 21. There, there, there's no comment. No, no decision. No, hey, that sounds great, Elijah. Just nothing. No, there's no, I'm not going to make a commitment here. I, I refuse to... to make any type of decision for the Lord here. And so there Elijah goes. He sets up the sacrifice and, and the showdown is about to be on. And so the second thing we see here is that total allegiance to God eliminates indecision. Total allegiance to God eliminates indecision. To become a follower of Jesus, we, ha we have to make a decision we have to make a decision to receive Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And then every day after that, it's a daily decision. Paul said, I die daily. Meaning I die to myself every day. And I live for Jesus Christ. And I'm deciding every morning. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I'm going to live for him today. So every day for the rest of our lives, it's about dying to self and following Jesus Christ and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a decision. Jesus, I'm going to live for you. Jesus, help me to be a godly husband. Help me to be a godly father. It's, all, it's just a daily, minute by minute, Lord, control me by your spirit. God, I need you. Take over my life. There, there's no indecision in the Christian life. There's no room for that. And so now, the time for the showdown finally arrives. So Elijah explained the rules, and everybody agreed. They got two bulls. They got one for the Baal people, one for Elijah, and they they set up the sacrifice, and so Elijah allows them to go first. And so about 9 o'clock in the morning, they begin this whole process. And you can, you can read through this uh, 
you read here in like verse 26, they took the bull that was given them and they began to cry out to Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. Look at verse, look how sad this is, verse 26. And there, but there was no voice and no one answered. Verse 27, and at noon, so this has gone on about two to three hours now. And at noon, Elijah began, he mocked them. Cry aloud. You know, maybe he's distracted. Maybe he's off on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. He's, he's mocking them because it's, it, there's just emptiness. There's, there's nothing happening. There's no response. And as midday passed, they raved on. They, they cut themselves, and there's blood flowing down their perspiring bodies, and they're dancing around. And, and you look at, at, at the end of verse 29. It takes it a step further. There's no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Just emptiness. That is the emptiness of idolatry. Of course, there's no answer because Baal's not real. This was a God that they made up. This was a God that they, they, they um, made up by their own intellect. And so there, there, there's only emptiness there. And so here's our third point. Total allegiance to God means that we have rejected the emptiness of idolatry. Elijah saw that. He just, can you imagine just sitting there for several hours and just watching all this? I mean, they were passionate. They were passionate about what they were doing, but they were still wrong. And Elijah's just watching the emptiness of the idolatry. No one's paying attention. For, they go on for hours. Elijah's about to pray for less than 20 seconds, and God answers like that. And here they are for about six hours, nothing, just emptiness. I thought it was so interesting. I don't know if y'all caught this, but the week of the Super Bowl, uh, you know, the Los Angeles Rams were playing. Sean McVay would, uh, did a, a press conference. He's their coach. He's the youngest coach in the NFL, 36 years of age. And so a question came up that was something like this. Do you see yourself coaching even into your 60s? And, and here's, here, here was his response. I'm going to be married this summer, want to have a family, and I think being able to, to find that balance. And I've always had a dream about being able to be a father, and I can't predict the future. I think that's so interesting. Here's a guy, the prime of his career. I mean, how many head coaches really get to coach in a Super Bowl? It, it's, it's not many. I would say maybe less than 10%. Here, and here's a guy, the prime of his career. And you know what he's dreaming about? Being a dad. So if work was that fulfilling, if that, if that idol was so mesmerizing, I think he would say, I'm going to do this until the day I die. Because this is just fulfills me. I can't imagine doing anything else. And he's sitting there thinking, you know what I'd really dream about? I'd dream about being a dad because he had seen that in his dad. His grandfather had been a coach, but his dad wasn't. His dad wanted to be a, a, a great father, and he had, a, he had a great dad. You see, the idols, career, money, whatever it is, it doesn't fulfill us. It never does. It's empty. There's a good, work's a great thing. God created work, but it's, not, it's a terrible idol. It's not meant to fulfill us. We're not meant to worship it. There's one final point I want you to see, verses 30 through 40. After all these hours of nonsense, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. Imagine they're defeated, they're bloody, they're sweaty, they're frustrated. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is interesting. If you read earlier in, in, in uh, 1 Kings, they had been separated to Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Elijah doesn't recognize that. He says there's one people of God. 
No matter where you live geographically, there's, there's one people of God. And so he built an altar here. He made a trench. He gets three different times, he gets water poured into it, which means now this, this meat is soaking wet. So he's given Baal every possible advantage. In his backyard, he let, it, let them go first. Now the sacrifice is completely wet. So if, if fire is going to consume it, it would be a miracle of God. He's setting the stage just for a miracle that once God shows himself, there will be no question who is the true and living God. So they do the water. Verse 35, the water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with water. Uh, and verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So they started around 9. Now it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. About six hours later, Elijah the prophet came near. said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known, or, or uh, Isaac and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel. And that I'm your servant, that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It means to turn like their hearts from apostasy, from rebellion against God to God. I timed that yesterday. You can say that less than 20 seconds. Less than 19 point, 19 something seconds. That's all it takes. Six hours, nothing. Less than 20 seconds. Think about Peter when Peter was drowning. Remember, he said, oh, Lord, save me. Boom, Jesus grabbed him. You don't have to have long prayers. I mean, we should spend time in prayer with God, but I mean, in those heat of the moment type thing, you don't have to have a long drawn out and, and uh, prayer. Just cry to God, and, and God heard him. And God, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There was no question. That Yahweh was the true God. And so they turned back to God. They had just a moment here of repentance and revival. And they killed the prophets of Baal. That goes back to Exodus. They were obeying God's covenant. So there was proof that they really did turn back to God, at least in that moment. And so... Elijah didn't dance around. Elijah didn't give a lecture. Elijah didn't berate them for all they did. Elijah prayed. And God brought, God answered, and then they had a moment there of revival. Oh. Now, here's our first point. Total allegiance to God means that he has all of our hearts. Total allegiance to God means that God has all of our hearts. Does God have all of your heart today? That's what he wants. God wants your heart. You think, no, no, he wants this. He wants, no, he wants your heart. And when he has your heart, you'll give him all the other things because you think, God, my life is yours. It's not my life. It's your life. So just do what you want. Do you know that about 800 years or so after this showdown on Mount Carmel, there was another showdown? And it was a little bit south east of there. It wasn't Mount Carmel. It was Mount Calvary. And for about the same time, for about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., the Lord Jesus Christ hung on a cross. He hung on a cross, kind of like that one there. And he, did, he didn't make a lot of noise. He didn't dance around. He just hung there like an innocent lamb led to the slaughter. And he came there to pay for our sins and for the sin of the whole world. And on Mount Carmel, it was clear, Yahweh is God. And on the cross, it was clear Jesus is God. You know why? 
Right after he died, remember the, the Roman centurion? Truly, this man was the son of God. Have you received this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you, or do you just know him as a good teacher? You've heard of him, but you're really living as a secularist. Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? And some of you would say, oh, Barry, I, yeah, Barry, I've done that. I did that years ago. And maybe the issue today is you're thinking that struggle in your heart right now is, come on, I, Barry, I'm just one person. I, I'm not Elijah. I, I, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I don't, I don't work for the media. I don't have influence. I'm just, I'm just a stay-at-home mom, I'm just a retiree. I'm just a teenager. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm nobody special. I'm just one person. Elijah was one person. You know what James says, James 5, 17? He was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was. But he prayed. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. For three and a half years, there was no rain. They said he prayed again, and God brought rain. One person with a nature just like our fallen human. He's not a superhero. Fallen human just like us. Ezekiel twenty two thirty says, this is what, listen to what the Lord said. I sought for a man. I sought for a man, just one among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. You know the rest of the verse? But I found none. God said, I was looking I was looking for one person who would just say, hey, I'll stand in the gap. Hey, I'll stand on the wall. I'll live for you, God. I'm just looking for one person. And the Lord said, I couldn't find anybody. What if the Spirit of the Lord just looking here this morning, going aisle to aisle, can I just find one person who will say, God, I'll live in total allegiance to you. God, I know, I know the pull is real to the world to just push you to the margins of life and just look, just Depend on self instead of denying self. I, I know it's real. I, I struggle with it too. But the Lord, is there just one person who would do that? Well, there was one person who made a difference. Oh, he made a difference. His name was Eddie. Eddie Futch. 1975. Eddie made a big difference. Um, years earlier, he had been a boxer as well. Pretty good one. He was amateur boxer. He was 37 and 3. That's a pretty good record. But the doctor one day found a heart murmur, and he no longer could box. So he decided, you know what, I'll be a trainer. So he went into training boxers, and he trained Don Jordan. Don Jordan became world champ in 1958. Well, in 1973, Joe Frazier hired Eddie Futch. And so 1975, October the 1st, there in Manila, Eddie is right there in Joe Frazier's corner. And, man, what, what a fight it was. The two, Ali Frazier, back and forth. You know, Ali never could knock him down during that fight. But he did wound him pretty severely. So after 14 rounds, Frazier, one of his eyes was closed and bruised and couldn't see the punches he was receiving. And so Eddie said, I'm going to call off the fight. And uh, Frazier, of course, protested. No, no, come on, boss. I, I, I want him. Come on. He said, no, no. He said, son, sit down. No one's going to forget what you did here today. And so... With 25,000 people in the audience, with 1 billion people watching on television, one man made a decision that determined the outcome of that fight. What if you are that one person that God's looking for today to say, I want to change Birmingham, I want to change America, I want to change the world? Will you give your total allegiance to him? Will you bow your heads with me?
Father, I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you for your patience and your mercy that you would send Elijah to call people back to you. Even though they were caught up in idolatry and wickedness, Lord, I thank you that you would send your son Jesus to pay for our sin, to demonstrate your love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they would do it right now. That, God, they would not put it off, that they would not be overwhelmed with their sin, but they'd be overwhelmed with the love of a Savior who died in their behalf. And they would surrender their lives to him right now. Lord, for those of us who've already made that decision, I pray that every day we would deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we push you to the margins of our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy when we live as if Jesus is not Lord of our lives. So I pray that Jesus would be Lord of every, every life in this room and every person listening. We pray, Father, you draw people back to yourself today. And we surrender to you. And we thank you that you love us so much to tell us the truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of response. Let's stand and sing together. If the Lord has moved, salvation, baptism, you want to pray, we're here to minister to you. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.